morning we find ourselves in Revelation 21. Bear with me. I've been dealing with being sick since Wednesday night, so. But we find ourselves in Revelation 21, finding ourselves in the last couple chapters. These are some of the greatest chapters written in the scriptures, because they are hope. It's what we set our eyes on. This is the thing that we continue to walk in faithfulness towards. It speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, a new reality, a different realm where sin has never touched it. And this is our motivation, our love for God, because in that new heaven and new earth, God is with us in a way that he has never been. And that is our hope that we place as we continue to walk each and every day through good times, through hard times, through heartache, through joy, through suffering, through pain, in the midst of sin, in the midst of rejoicing and worship. This is the whole point. Everything that Christ has done points to this. This is our joy because we know it's a living hope. Because we know it's true. Because we continue to seek after the things above. We continue to seek after the country we honestly belong to. Hebrews 11 speaks of this. In Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, it says this, And all these died in their faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance. And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then down in verse 16. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is, the heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. This is the perspective that we are called to have. To know that we are nothing but sojourners in the land called earth. That we are not to place our hope in things here. That we are not to place our joys in the temporary fleeting things of life. That we are continue to be renewed in our mind by what we are looking forward to. Why? Because that is where Christ is seated. He is seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father. When we set our minds on the things of the earth... We set our minds on the things that are temporary, on the things that have tainted with sin. The scriptures talk an awful lot about heaven and what our perspective ought to be. The Psalms especially. In Psalm 73, Psalm 73, Asaph has this to say in verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph is saying there is nothing in this life that I desire more than God. There is nothing in this life that pulls my attentions and my affections more than God. There is nothing in this earth that compares with my longing for heaven. Because that's where God is. Because that's where Perfect righteousness dwells. That's where holiness is. 
That's where our victory is in Christ. If you jump back to Psalm 42, Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, David has this to say. I'm sorry, the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? A deep desire to be in the presence of God. That is the desire that we as Christians ought to have. Not one that says on Sunday I worship a God and on Monday through Saturday I worship myself. Christians now today have a shallow perspective of heaven. Matthew 5 verse 8. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is a seeing of a face to face. It is not just we'll see God in His Word, we'll see God in the Scriptures, but we have the promise and the hope of seeing as we are seen. We have the hope and the promise of being face to face with our Creator and not dying. Psalm 1611. It's a verse I memorized many years ago. But it says this, You, speaking of God, will make known to me the path of life. But then he gets down to the whole point of that. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. David understood that this life doesn't bring pleasure and joy. God does. God's presence does. So often, our perspective has been lost. We were having a discussion in our house this morning based on that perspective of how many of us can sit back and name songs that have to do with heaven. Now, you know what the first instinct was in my family? They started naming off all these hymns. Great! Okay, let's throw the old stuff out the window for a minute. Not because it's bad, but let's move it out of the way. Give me songs about heaven today. Yeah, that same look was on my family's faces. Like, there's got to be some. It's hard, right? People aren't writing music. People aren't writing books. People aren't writing things about heaven anymore. People's perspective is is on earth. But then we got into the conversation. There have been things about heaven put out by media, right? Unbiblical things. Things that really don't have a biblical perspective. Things that are contrary to the scripture. But there's no depth to people's faith when it comes to heaven anymore. It's just, eh, at the end of the road, I'll get there. I'm glad I can spend eternity there, but I'm going to focus on what I got now. I'm going to focus on finding my pleasure in the here and now. Earth has more appeal. Do you know what the Apostle James said? In James 4.4, he came out and he railed against the Jews. And he said, you adulteresses. Why? Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? And yet, the church loves the world. It has become worldly. It has not set its mind on the things above, as Scripture commands. Why does it tell us to set our minds on things above? There is great power in a heavenly focus. We're going to read a few Scriptures in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. 
Philippians 3 verse 20 says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're eagerly waiting, how do we do that? Well, we don't do it by filling our lives with things of this world and the passing pleasures of sin. We do it by eagerly looking forward to that which we have been promised. Heaven, the joy of Christ, the joy of worshiping God without the hindrance of our flesh and our sin. And yet, ain't not one of us here can picture that in our heads rightly because it were tainted with sin. Colossians 3, Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Do you know this is one of the greatest commandments that the church fails today? Is we worry about today. We worry about my vacation. What I'm going to do after church. What I'm going to do tomorrow. Making more money. Going on vacation. Doing all these things that are temporary. Why? Because we have lost a heavenly perspective. And we wonder why the church is a mess and engrossed in sin. And why it's openly embracing the things of the world. Why it's changing the way the church looks so that it can invite the world in so they can be comfortable. Let's not talk about sin because that's going to push people out the door. Let's not talk about sin because we lose our bottom dollar. Then we can't have this big building that's a whole sanctuary to pride. Let's not talk about sin and help people see how they are in the eyes of a holy God. Let's not encourage people to walk in truth. Let's not encourage people to witness because you might offend somebody. The gospel is offensive. Christ is offensive and foolish to the unbeliever. There's no getting around that. Praise God we understand that. But let us praise God more by living it. Every day. Keep your mind set on the things above. 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John, the Apostle who loves the people of God. In 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. A heavenly perspective. We must gain that perspective back as the church. How many times have you guys heard a sermon on heaven? I can't think of any. Unless somebody's preaching out of Revelation for some reason. But really, when's the last time you heard a sermon about heaven? There's not very many that you can put your finger on. And it's sad because heaven is to be our perspective. The Bible is clear about that. It is riddled with the understanding that we are to keep our focus and our eyes set on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Where is Christ? He's in heaven. 
Where is our end result? It is heaven. Where is our citizenship? It is in heaven. It is not this earth. It is not the fleeting things of this world. It is not sorrow and shame that we have now. But it is joy without sin. How do we have joy in the midst of trials? A heavenly perspective. How do we have strength and endurance? A heavenly perspective. How do we not fear death and persecution? A heavenly perspective. Everything goes back to heaven because God is the focus of heaven. So what are some of our benefits? Stay in 1 John. Go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. For we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him just as he is, again, face to face. And if anyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure, a heavenly perspective gains a perspective of purity. Again, we like to quote Philippians 4.8, right? Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, right? Those are the things we are to set our minds on. You know what those are? Qualities of Christ. They're a heavenly perspective. They are a thing that is above. We gain strength over sin by having a heavenly perspective because we don't put our weight and focus here on earth. The Gospel of Luke Chapter 12, Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, and verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you value the things of this world, your treasure is poor. If you value the things of this life, your treasure is fleeting and rotting and rusting and easy to steal. But if your treasure is in heaven, no one can steal that. But what, is he, what did Jesus say here? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you don't have a heavenly perspective, how is your heart filled with the right kind of treasure? If you have a heavenly perspective, you are seeking the lost. You are proclaiming the gospel of Christ and the good news of eternal salvation. If your perspective is on Christ, You are finding yourself wrapped in joy and grace and mercy and strength. Not because we're strong, but because we're weak and He is strong. Not because we have so much greatness in us, but because we have Christ in us. Not because we have any hope in what we can do, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. A heavenly perspective changes how we live. It changes the emphasis of the things that we place our priorities on. If we have a heavenly perspective, my ministry to my wife and my children comes first. If I have a heavenly perspective, my ministry to the church body comes second. If I have a heavenly perspective, my ministry to those around me in my community comes third. You know what comes last? Me. Me. Why? Because Christ said... Repent and deny yourself and follow me. Self is not in that. It is repent of your sin because you are wretched. Deny yourself 
Because when you put self in the way, you never follow Christ. And then follow me. Yourself will always be last. Because love, true love, is a sacrificial commitment to another's good. You guys have heard me say that a hundred times. And I'll say it a hundred more, I guarantee it. Love is a sacrificial commitment to another's good. You can't do that when your focus is on yourself. You have to have a heavenly perspective. Romans 8. No, actually, let's go to 2 Corinthians 4 first. 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. A heavenly perspective helps us gain insight. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You cannot have that perspective without a heavenly one. The things of this world are just momentary light afflictions. Think about the lifespan of a person. If by strength 70 years, maybe by a little extra 80. But you know what God says? It's a drop in the bucket. It's a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. Why? Because God is eternal. And our life now determines our eternity. What you believe will determine your eternity. This life is short. It's fleeting. And as we get older, I know all of us who are older can attest to the fact that life seems to just go by faster and faster and faster. Where is your perspective? Because where your perspective is, your heart is. Where your heart is, is where your belief is. Why? And I've told this to my children a million times. What you believe is what you do. You can say, I believe in this. If you never do it, I call you a liar. Because your belief is what your motivation is and how you live. I believe in Christ, therefore I shall live as Christ. I believe I love the world, then I will live as the world. The church loves the world today, and it looks like the world. That's why it's hypocritical, right? One of the biggest obstacles for people coming to faith in Jesus Christ is the church. Because it loves the world. It thinks it can have God and have the world. But James says you're a fool. You're an adulteress. You can't fit God and the world in the same place. And yet we try over and over. Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 5. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Where are you setting your mind? Is it on things of this world? Well, the Scripture tells us we set our minds on death then. Is it the things of heaven? Then we set our minds on life and peace. Where is your perspective? Where is your perspective? Because we all have one. You can't live in this life and be a living human being and not have a perspective. Where do you draw your perspective from? The church has lost its heavenly perspective as a whole in our day and age. 
We were talking about it this morning. How has the church gone from in the first century and even in the first thousand years? How did it go from a heavenly perspective where the books that were written, the things that were talked about, the hymns that were written that we still sing today that we can name a hundred that talk about heaven. How did that perspective go from there to where we are today where it's so trivial? Like the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, Jesus said, you have lost your first love. The church has lost its love for heaven. The church has lost its love for God at that point. Because you can't love the earth and the things of it and love God. Because the mind set on the earth is death. It's hostility. It's hatred. The thing set on heaven and on the word of God is life and peace and joy and prosperity. And I'm not talking about monetary prosperity, people. Not going there. I'm going to the prosperity of life and life to the full that Jesus promised. A life that when it's the hardest, darkest time, I still got joy. I still got peace. Why? Because my joy and peace isn't derived from the things that are happening around me. It's derived from the person of God and Jesus Christ. And that never changes. And that never moves. And that never diminishes. Because God does not change. Draw your perspective from the right place. There are over 500 references in the Bible to heaven. And do you know over 10% of them are found just in the book of Revelation alone? Do you think it's important? Do you think it's important? Scripture talks about three different heavens, right? You have the heaven, which is the atmosphere of the earth. Then you have the second heaven, which is the stars and the solar system and all that. And then you have the third heaven where God dwells. That's where we're looking towards. That's where we're going. The place that has never been tainted by sin. We were talking about the reality of heaven this morning. A place that has no taint of sin. A place where God dwells with his people Face to face. Where we will see and be seen. Where we will no longer have to be taught by man, but we will be taught by God himself. A place where we can worship rightly without Lord. I got to check my heart again. Because we got to every time we step foot in the church. Check our hearts. Make sure they're right. Make sure we don't have something against our brother. Make sure we don't have something against our sister. Make sure we don't have something against God himself. We must be people of the heart. But a right perspective. The the scriptures always talk about heaven as up, right? Because it looks from an earthly perspective. Because God is so far above. But enough of an introduction, right? We've got to get to our passage here sometime this morning. But again, as we go through the next couple chapters of Revelation, let us remember that it's because we ought to set our mind on these things that so much has been given in this book to these things. 
We got two full chapters. That doesn't include the stuff in Isaiah, the stuff in Malachi, the stuff in Jeremiah, and the stuff written all over the other scriptures, even in the Gospels. We've got so much about heaven. Let us set our minds on heaven and see how much your life changes with that. See how much your perspective changes. See how much you can see the joy of God in the midst of suffering. That's why Paul could say it's a momentary light affliction. It means little. It means little in the scope of being counted worthy. Of knowing where we're going. Spending our eternity in a perfect, complete life of worship without end. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that we can come and gather as your people together one body, one mind, one heart, one spirit, one Lord. Father, we thank you that today that we can gather and make great who you are and who we are in Christ. We thank you that we can look forward to the reality of heaven. Because it is a reality. It is more real than what we can even see with our eyes right now. It is there. It is sure. Father, give us a perspective that continues to look to heaven where you and Christ are seated, ruling and reigning perfectly. Father, by the power of your spirit, may we continue to set our minds on life and peace. May we not get distracted with the temporary things of this life, but may we continue to love Christ with all that we are, that we would minister rightly to our families, to your church, to our communities. May we not shrink back because the world hates you. May we be bold and unyielding in the truth of your word. May we not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Father, may we rightly have a heavenly perspective, and may that be seen in our lives on a daily basis. Lord, bless this time we have in your word, in Jesus' name. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. We'll read them and then we'll start unpacking the truth here. Revelation 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write. 
for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the, immor- and the murderers and the immoral persons and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. These next two chapters are full. I'm going to have a hard time breaking them down into small enough chunks. They're full. We've got a lot to hit through this morning. But we're going to break this down and start looking at some of the realities of what heaven and earth will be like. And our first one we're going to look at is the reality of heaven and earth and its newness in verse 1. It says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now that phrase, a new heaven and a new earth, is not new. That's actually derived out of the book of Isaiah. So go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 65. So again, John is writing from a perspective that God has given him, and that perspective continues to fit with all of Scripture. In Isaiah 65 and verse 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Again, there's our phrase, right? Our phraseology is not new. God has not been quiet. It's not all of a sudden at the end of the Bible, God says, oh, by the way, here's here's what you got coming. God has been open about this since the beginning. God has been open about it. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered nor come to mind. God continues to paint that heavenly perspective for his people. He gives them a glimpse of what he has in store for them so that they can set their mind and their hope on those things. And then in the next chapter, in Isaiah 66, verse 22, For I will also take from them Oh, whoops, wrong one. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. Again, the certainty that God places. That as long as God endures, it'll be there. And we know that God is eternal. Therefore, the new heaven and the new earth will be eternal. It is God who is preparing the new heaven and the new earth. Right? Christ gave that promise. I go to prepare a place for you. It is a reality. It is an actual physical place that we will go. And of course, my favorite book, the book of Job. And why do we need a new heaven and a new earth, right? Well, in Job chapter 15 and verse 15. Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. And then in Isaiah 24, in Isaiah 24, he has this to say. Isaiah 24 and verse 5. For the earth is polluted by its inhabitants. For they transgressed laws, they violated statutes, and they broke the everlasting covenant. The reason we need a new heaven and a new earth is because the heaven and earth we live in now is tainted. We, we saw last week that there will be the uncreation of heaven and earth as we know it today. That it will be burned up. 
and done away with. And God will make a new heaven and a new earth. He's not going to revitalize what is here. He's going to do away with that which has been tainted by sin. And he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth that's never been touched by sin. I don't know about you, but that's going to look completely different than anything we've ever seen. We think things are beautiful, and yet everything we look at has been tainted by sin. It's a thought, right? It's a reality. We have the reality of sin that taints everything. Psalm 102 Psalm 102, verse 25 and 26. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. But even they will perish, but you will endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. Again, the promise that we will not be living here in a world tainted by sin. We will have a new heaven and a new earth. And then he, and he confirms that. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. That is a great reality. It is a great perspective to have. And it's interesting because John only makes one notation of the new heaven and the new earth at this point. And he says there will no longer be any sea. Now for those of you who love the ocean, I'm sorry. I apologize, but God says there will be no See, there'll be a river. That's promised. But it's interesting, because if you look at it, what is the characteristic of the sea? Water, right? It's turbulent. It's violent. It's very hostile to people, right? Go try to walk in the ocean and see how long you last. You're not going to last long. But it's hostile. It's violent. It's turbulent. It's always moving. It's what produces our hydrologic system, right? Evaporation, rain, all that stuff. But think about it in this perspective. The blood of a person, right? All your blood is made up of 90% of water. Your bodies are made up of 65% of water. The earth is made up of 75% of water. And there's not a thing on this planet that doesn't have water to give it life. Right? Everything that is living is dependent on water. That will change in heaven. No longer will we be dependent on water for our life will be dependent on God. And it's God who gives life. And the old things will pass away, and the new things will be new. And it's a beautiful picture. But again, in Revelation 22, verses 1 and verse 17, it gives us that idea. There will be a river of life in heaven. There will be a river that we are called to come and to drink freely of. But it just again shows us that what is in store for us, we can't even wrap our minds around. I'm not going to try to give you a picture because I don't have one. Because even whatever I come up with, it's going to be wrong. But I know it's going to be great. And it's going to be beyond any scope of my imagination. It's going to be beyond any fantasy movie that you have ever seen. Of any world that has been created by man. It will be indescribable. But the greatest part of it is God's there in its midst physically. That's the beauty of heaven, the physicality of God in the midst of his people. But the new heaven and the new earth is a reality. Secondly, John describes for us the capital city of heaven, and it's a physical city. In verse 2, 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. What does a city picture for us? People, right? People is there in the city. Work, community, unity, life, hobbies, right? All these things that make up society. There will be society in heaven. There will be work to do. There will be people to talk with. There will be times of relaxation. There will be times of work. There will be times of worship. But a physical city is the reality. And we know that because later in Revelation that we'll get to, it gives you physical dimensions. It is a reality. There is an actual Jerusalem. But there have been three Jerusalems mentioned in Scripture. The first one is the city of David. And it's still here today with us in Palestine. If you don't believe me, you can go over there and buy a plane ticket and ride over there. I'd love to. But. The second one is Jerusalem when it's remade in the Millennial Kingdom. And the third one is the New Jerusalem. And it's not the first or the second because those have passed away. Right? Look back in our, in our text from last week. The new heavens and the new earth fled away from the presence and were no longer found. But there is a new Jerusalem that is coming, adorned and made ready. And it gives us a description. It says it is the holy city. Why is it holy? Because everyone who dwells there will be holy. I don't know about y'all, but that's a great, exciting idea that I will one day be holy. Without mistake, without offense, that I will be pleasing always in the sight of God. It doesn't get better than that. It doesn't get better than that. Everybody who dwells there will be holy. Revelation 20, verse 6 says that for blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Blessed and holy. Again, those who dwell in heaven will be holy. The holy people and the holy angels. And whatever else God has there. I don't know what it is. But I'm sure there'll be things there that we've never seen before, right? Anybody ever seen a cherubim? No. Seraphim? Anybody ever seen an angel? Not that we're aware of, right? Possibly have. Anybody ever seen God? No. But that's what we have to look forward to. Because we will be holy. We'll be able to see those things. And enjoy them. Perfectly. But you'll be able to live in a community. That runs perfectly. No sin. No discord. No disagreements. No my neighbor lives too close and is too loud. None of that. It'll be perfect. Hebrews 11 Verse 10 tells us that this city comes down from God. God makes it. God creates it. And God brings it down for his people to enjoy. And then Hebrews 12 is that it's a reality. Now I'm going to read Hebrews 12 because I think it's important. Verse 22 and 23. 
I'm going to start in verse, yeah, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's a reality now. It just hasn't come down yet. But it's a reality now. And then he goes on to describe the city that it is adorned as a bride made ready for her husband. The city takes on the characteristics of the bride. The bride is holy. The bride is made ready. The bride is perfect. And it's interesting because it goes through again the understanding of completion. Because we have the examples in Revelation that we've read through about the wedding ceremony. Because the church is called the bride of Christ. Well, there's imagery that goes along with that, right? First, you had the betrothal that happened in eternity past when God ordained that he would, bless you, that he would redeem a people for his good pleasure. And then you had the time of presentation. That's at the rapture of the church, when the church is caught up with the Lord to be with the Lord forever. And they had that time of presentation that goes from there throughout the millennial kingdom. And you had the ceremony, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that begins when the church is raptured and goes throughout the millennial kingdom, when we are able to enjoy Christ in, in, in that situation. And then we have here the consummation of the marriage, the completion of that marriage. As Jesus says later on, it is done. The marriage is complete. And it's interesting because the bride will not only include the church as it has since Acts chapter 2, it will include all the redeemed from all ages past and future. Everybody will be married to the Lamb of God. Another thing that we see here too, now we'll see it in our next verse. But the beauty of that is all of it has come together. Perfectly as God has ordained. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28 says this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. When all things are subjected to Him, which is Christ, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. That's the fulfillment of that. That the bride is made ready and adorned for her husband. It's the completion of that. There's fulfillment to the promise made through the Apostle Paul to his people. Our third point, verses 3 through the beginning part of verse 6, is the reality of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is real. It is a real kingdom. And we are a people that are being made ready for that kingdom. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. For the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We have points here of what the kingdom of God looks like. Because it is a physical kingdom, you realize there's no temple, right? Why? Because God and the Lamb Himself is the temple. 
You no longer have to go to a building to worship God. You can go to God and worship God. The glory of heaven is a reality of face-to-face worship. The beauty of God's people is they will get to worship face-to-face. So let's start looking at some of the points of the kingdom. Firstly, God will be near. God will be near, right? Starts off. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. You know, it's interesting that it's repeated three times, right? John has got to be so overwhelmed at this point. I don't know about you, but if God has given you these visions, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to read it and to understand the reality of it, but imagine seeing it and experiencing it. But God will be near his people. Not in the veiled form of Christ as a human when he walked on earth. Not even of Christ in the millennial kingdom. But of God unveiled. Not God in a cloud, nor in a pillar of fire, nor behind a curtain in the Holy of Holies. But God will be among his people. Again, Matthew 5, 8. The pure of heart will see God face to face. It's that blessed hope that we have that we will finally be able to see not just our risen Savior, but our God in His fullness. John 17, 24. If my Bible pages will not stick together here. John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world we have the fulfillment of that we have the promise of that that will happen at this time God will be among his people and we will see him in his glory which is his desire we will be people of a kingdom that will see its king 1 John 1.3 Sorry, my pages are sticking together here. 1 John 1.3 For what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That joy will be made complete in the kingdom of God. I have a quote from Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter was a 17th century Puritan. And he says this, and again, hang with the old English, okay? Doubtless, as God advanceth our senses and enlargeth our capacity, so he will advance the happiness of those senses and fill up with himself all of our capacity. We shall then have, we shall then have light without a candle, perpetual day without the sun, we shall, have, we shall then have enlightened understandings without the scripture and be governed without a written law. For the Lord will perfect his law in our hearts and we shall all perfectly be taught of God. We shall have joy which we drew not from the promises nor fetched home by our faith and our hope. We shall have communion without the sacraments, without the fruit of the vine, when Christ shall drink it new with us in his Father's kingdom and refresh us with the comforting 
new uh, with the comforting wine of immediate enjoyment. To have necessities but no supply is the case of them in hell. To have necessity supplied by means of the creatures is the case of us on earth. To have necessity supplied immediately from God is the case of the saints in heaven. To have no necessity at all is the prerogative of God himself. It's a beautiful understanding that everything will be met by God himself in his kingdom. We shall see him as he is. And we could go through verse after verse after verse after verse in the scripture that proclaims that truth. John 1.18, Colossians 1.15, 1 Timothy 6.16. But then we also have the promise in Exodus 33.20 where it says those who see God in the flesh shall die. Right? Nobody can see God as he is and live because we are mortal, because we are sinful. But we have the promise that we will see him in his glory. Again, we are going to see him in glory to the degree that we are able, even in a glorified body. Because you'll never, ever see the full glory of God. Because he's too great. But God will reveal more of himself to us. And we'll have an eternity of enjoying getting to see more of God. Getting to know him more. Again, put away that false understanding that when you get to heaven, you'll know everything. It's a fallacy. If we knew everything, God wouldn't be God. And what would you be worshiping at that point? Thirdly, our worship will be unhindered. Everywhere in the book of Revelation, when we see a picture of heaven, and we see a picture of God, what do you see? You see a picture of his people worshiping. Heaven will be full of worship. Don't think you're going to just get to heaven and you're going to enjoy whatever you want to do all the time. It's going to be about worship and that's what you're going to want to do all the time. Because you will be perfect and you will give praise and glory and honor to the one who deserves it. We will have jobs in heaven. Scripture tells us that. We will serve him. As part of our worship is to be able to serve him John 4.23 John 4.23 And Jesus says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Don't think because we go to heaven, God no longer seeks worshipers. It's the beauty of heaven, is that we can worship without the hindrance of our flesh and our sin. We can worship perfectly, one who is perfectly worthy of our worship. Fourthly, we will be able to serve perfectly. Revelation 22, 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. We will have the ability to serve God, not because he has need, but because he delights in it, because he delights in his people worshiping and serving him. With a whole heart. Are we doing that today? Are we serving perfectly? We will serve, but in different capacities. Again, we're not all going to be doing the same thing in the sense of service. 
right? The master of a house has many servants, but they all don't do the same thing. They all have different roles. And that's also another beauty of heaven, that we can all worship perfectly and serve perfectly, but not all doing the same thing. It's the vastness of God's creative mind, one that we can't wrap our minds around. Number five, Christ will be blessed, will bless his people by serving them. That is a reality of heaven, is being blessed and worshiping God by his service to his people. If you don't believe me, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, please. Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Christ spoke of this reality when he was here on earth. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. And I'll be honest with you, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around this reality. Because we are not worthy. But in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus says this, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master for when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and he knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find alert when he comes. And truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at a table and will come up and will wait upon them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and he finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed the house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Christ says, Blessed are my slaves whom I find doing what they ought to be doing and alert for my coming. And in that blessing, I will gird myself and serve you. Have you reclined at a table and I will serve you. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. Because I am not worthy of the service of Christ. And yet, it's a reality. And it also shows it's not our worthiness, it's His. Because without the worthiness of Christ, none of us would see it. Number six. What will not be there? John gives us an idea in the reality of heaven what won't be there. Firstly, he lists tears. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some people have gotten the wrong understanding that when they get to heaven, they're going to cry over their sin. It's not true. Why? Because Romans 8.1 tells us, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has removed our sin as far as the east from the west. We will not be weeping over our sin. We will be rejoicing in the presence of our Savior. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you are healed. If you are healed, you are no longer sick. If you are healed, you are made whole and complete. It's just the reality that there will be nothing in heaven that we will be ashamed of or cry over. There will be nothing there to cause a tear to fall from your eye. The absence of anything to sadden God's people. That is the reality of the new heaven and the new earth. Also, the absence of death. 
Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, right? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory, right? It is no longer there. Because we know that Satan, who holds the power of death, and death itself has been cast into the lake of fire. We read that back in chapter 20. Death will no longer be there. Neither will there be mourning or crying, nor pain. We get that from Isaiah 53. And I'm going to read that for you this morning because it's important. But in Isaiah 53, we get that understanding of why there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. For he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he, his, our griefs he bore himself and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. There's no more mourning or crying. No more pain. Because Christ bore that on the cross for us. And we no longer have to face the penalty of our sins. It is the reality of heaven. And John at this point gets so overwhelmed that he gets commanded to write again, right? Verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. John forgot to keep writing because he was overwhelmed. And rightly so. Rightly so. And he's commanded to write these words. Why? Because they are faithful and true. You know, Jesus holds those titles, right? Revelation 1, Revelation 22. I am the faithful and true witness. It is always the person and work of Christ. Luke 21, verse 33. I'm going to read quickly for you. Luke 21, and verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. When Christ tells John to write these words, they will not pass away. They will always be there. Because God has ordained them. And then what does he say after he tells them to write? Then he said to me, it is done. It's reminiscent of John chapter 19 and verse 30, where Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. His work on earth was finished. And here in heaven, he says, my work is done. The new heaven and new earth has been created. The old has gone. The new has come. It is done. It is completed. We have the promises of it. And then he says what? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one who created history and started history. He is the one who ends it. Redemptive history is done. It is completed. It is finished. God has now removed man out of time and placed him in eternity. It's a glorious, glorious truth to know we will never have an end of worshiping the God who has done everything for us. There is nothing that's been left out. There is nothing that hasn't been accomplished. Why do we not set our minds on these things?
quickly our last two points. Number four, heaven's citizens, verse, the latter part of verse 6 and 7. Heaven's citizens. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There are two marks that God places on those who will be his citizens, of those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Firstly, those who thirst. Do you have a thirst? Do you have a thirst for righteousness? Do you have a thirst for truth? Do you have a thirst for the holy things of God? Or do you have a thirst for this world and the things of it? Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The mark of a citizen of heaven is one who thirsts. And don't think that thirst will slake and go away. When you worship God, it increases. But it's very reminiscent. When I was reading through this, one of my first thoughts was going back into the book of Isaiah in chapter 55. In Isaiah 55, we have that free call to those who thirst. In verse 1, we start off with the word, Ho! Right? Catch your attention. And he says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And then he says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. We have the blessed hope that those who thirst will be citizens of heaven. Yet Jesus made that promise to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. In John 4, he told the woman at the well, at Jacob's well, all who drink of this water will what? Thirst again. But he who drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst again, for it will be in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then Jesus cried out in John chapter 7, at the end of the ceremony, and he says, I am the water of life. He who drinks of me shall never thirst. Is that during the water libation ceremony? We talked about that in weeks past. Christ is the living water. He who thirsts shall be called the citizen of heaven. The second mark of the citizens of heaven is he who overcomes. That tells us of what? Perseverance, endurance. Do you know all the letters, the seven letters in the book of Revelation, all end with, and he who overcomes shall partake? We must overcome this world. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 has this to say about overcoming. John, 4 verses, or John 5, verses 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. For who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We must overcome the world. And how do we know that those who overcome will be blessed? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. 
For we will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will never fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We have a promise, a great promise of a great inheritance. Those who overcome will be blessed. Hebrews 12, 23 tells us that those who are of Christ and go to eternity will have a perfect body and soul. Perfect, without fault, without blemish, without stain or wrinkle, right? Ephesians 5. And Romans 8, 23 gives us our great reality at the in verse 6 here, or in verse 7. Not only will we inherit these things, but I will be his God and he will be my son. Adoption fully realized. Our adoption will be fully realized at this point. Romans 8, verse 23. I'm going to read it for you because it's important. Romans 8, verse 23. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body. That, at this point, is fully realized. We have gained an inheritance in Christ as brothers with Christ, as sons of the living God. And our adoption is fully realized because we have been made perfect and holy and see him face to face. And our last point this morning, verse 8, those who will be excluded from heaven. If there's inclusion in heaven, there's exclusion as well. Verse 8, But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. You know, there have been many lists in the scriptures of those who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Revelation 22 and verse 15 is one of those lists. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Romans chapter 1. Again, we're going to set this point home. Romans 1, verses 28 to 32. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And all, though they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and the things like these, of which I have forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. Verses 2-5. through For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. God is not silent on those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in those lists are characteristics of the things that we ought to avoid, of the things we ought not to practice, of the things we ought not to hold in high regard, of the things we ought not to tolerate. Because our world tells us we must tolerate it. Because if God is love, God loves all, and God tolerates all. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Yes, God is love, but God is wrathful. God is just. God is holy. And we as people ought to be as such. And it's interesting in us list here in chapter 21, he starts out with the cowardly. You know, Jesus talked about those in the parables of the seed and the soil. In Matthew 13, I'm going to read it quickly for you. In Matthew 13, Jesus spoke of those who are cowardly and what their characteristic is. In Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21, when he explains the parable of the sower, he said, The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet... He has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. He is a coward. Are you scared to stand firm on the truth of God's word? If you are, you're a coward. Scripture is very clear. What did Jesus say? If you deny me before men, I shall deny you before my Father and his angels. But if you confess me before men, I shall confess you before my Father and his angels. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 39 describes them this way. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Again, as we rejoice in the reality of heaven, we must remember to set our mind and our affections on the things of heaven. That we will be faithful to the end. That as Paul said, that I can say at the end of my race that I have fought the good fight, I have run the race, 
Finishing well is important. Not just running the beginning part of the race. Those who run with endurance in the first part of the race and slough off at the end will not win. Endurance, perseverance, long-suffering. We ought to look to the things above to find strength and joy through our hard times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, again for your word. We thank you for the encouragement of your word that you have not hidden from us the things which you have prepared. And even though we do not understand them fully, Lord, and we never can in this life, we rejoice in the fact that you have prepared a place for us and that because you have prepared a place, you are coming again to receive us to yourself, that where you are, we may be also. Father, help us to stand firm upon your word and upon truth. Help us to stand firm in the faith. Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Help us to continue to triumph over sin. Help us to continue to run well. That we may be faithful slaves of Christ. That we may hear the greatest and most joyous words. Well done, my good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. Father, those are the words we long to hear with every fiber of our being. Help us to live in such a way that we run well. For your glory and honor, in Jesus' name. Amen.